I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome, everybody. It's been a while. Well, it's been a minute seems to be the phrase of the 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 zeitgeist, but I don't really get it. I don't really like that phrase. So I'm just going to say it's been a while. Uh, I went on holiday, then I was on a work trip, then I was sick. So that explains pretty much everything. Um, yeah, <laughs> need to get back into the rhythm of it all. Life has sort of come back to almost 90% reality. Uh, more of that in a minute, actually, uh, because I got back to conferences and events again. So I think I just need to get used to doing this on the road again. Uh, I have the setup for it. I think you just sort of get out of the habit, I suppose. But anyway, enough excuses. This is Chinchilla Squeaks. You're here to uh, hear me give you some interesting links of the quote-unquote week and what I've been up to and thoughts on these various processes. And I've got quite a bit to discuss, seeing as it's been a while. So let's get straight into it. Firstly, referring to an article here from Liam Tung on ZDNet, but covered, of course, widely. RIP, rest in peace, macOS server. Uh, I think this took me, me and many others by surprise when we all heard that a macOS server even still existed, but it it does, it did. Uh, but now from Apple the 20, Apple the 21st? Wow. <laughs> April the 21st, it has been discontinued. Mostly, they say, because a lot of the features that you need are part of macOS. And I would also challenge how many people were really running macOS servers to do much more probably than uh, distributed rendering and and things like that, which, again, I think come as part of Final Cut, come as part of Compressor, come as part of Xcode, etc., etc., all these sorts of distributed tasks that people tend to need to do. I have a long, distant memory of macOS server. I'm not even not sure what it was called. It might have been X server in those days. I'm not sure. Uh, running... Several labs. This was back in. Ooh. Ooh. I don't even know if it was the late 90s or the early 2000s, but somewhere thereabouts. It was in the very, very early days of Mac OS 10. So maybe 2000, 2001, something like that. Because um, it ju- was just emerging at the time. So it was still running labs of Mac OS 9. Uh, and we had two labs of 30 computers of Emacs and needed to manage them somehow. And we did use um, the server product, whatever it was called at the time, and to do things like setting up user accounts and templates for user accounts and things like that. And I will admit it never worked massively well. (laughs) It was always pretty unreliable, pretty flaky. We ended up working around it a lot of the time. Things were quite slow uh, nice in principle, I guess Apple were trying to recreate some of what worked very, very well in the Windows world, but it never worked that well. And I don't know how widespread its use was in that capacity, to be honest with you. I think you could probably accomplish, and I've seen this, a lot of it without kind of centralized services these days with with uh, more of, what, what's the word? More like, um, I can't think of the word, but when a central administrator kind of rolls out profiles, I get the impression that these days, most companies giving their employees Macs, the Mac user is kind of 
trusted, shall we say, is usually developers, designers, etc., as opposed to kind of general uh, light client office work, shall we say, um, where which is where you tend to get these much more centrally managed clients, and thus in, instead you end up with a machine that the user can kind of do mostly what they want, but it's watched, it's prov- provisioning, that's the word, it's provisioned, uh, it can be remote desktoped into, it has some kind of security profiles that allow for an element of checks and things, that kind of process these days. Uh, and I don't know how much we paid for the server product in those days, but it's last price, considering that macOS has been free now for some time, we used to have to pay for macOS itself, it was $20, I'm pretty sure it ran into the thousands when we used to, to buy it, but there we go. Not a product that I necessarily remember with much fondness, but I do remember it. Rest in peace, macOS server. Now, this is not a specific article itself, but more of a website. I think I might have mentioned some of the writer's content before, but I've just been diving very deep into it. This is the Eclectic Light Company from... From Howard Noakley, which you sort of have to dig a little deep to find who that was. Um, he makes, I don't know, he makes all sorts of different things. He has a bunch of niche debugging sysinformation Mac apps that I downloaded a couple of yesterday. And then a lot of very detailed posts about Macs, macOS. Uh, and it's been going for some time, since 2015 actually, but really has come into its own since the release of Apple Silicon. And he has written a lot of articles about Apple Silicon and how it works. I suppose because with Intel Macs and before that with 68,000 PowerPC Macs, the designs were kind of out there to a certain degree and you could figure out the architecture and how they functioned, et cetera, et cetera. With Apple Silicon, with even though they're sort of ARM derived, there's a lot of kind of mystery behind them. And the only real exposure that most people would get is, 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 is through Apple developer docs, through developing applications that leverage certain highly abstracted aspects of them. And so this has left a lot of scope for theorizing and explanation. And Howard on, on this blog in the past uh, couple of years has really dug deep into figuring a lot of that out and building applications that test things and push things in certain ways. And there's a wealth of knowledge on this website. It's the eclecticlight.co, in case you're wondering. Um, digging really deep into a lot of what's going on behind the scenes. And I found it quite fascinating. And I'm starting to play around with some of his applications to, to understand. Because, yeah, I have noticed with M1 Max that sometimes you get some amazing performance and other times it's not so amazing. And, of course, with any kind of technology, if an application is not developed, optimized for something, you're wasting a lot of that optimization. And in this growing age of just cross-platform kind of cookie-cutter applications, you do miss out on a lot of potential optimizations. And I don't really know what the solution is. And this is one interesting thing I learned in this uh, some of his blog posts, is that I think Apple was fairly understanding of this. Uh, and instead of leaving it up to application developers to handle that kind of prioritization the operating system does it which makes sense to a point but of course there will probably be times when a developer would like to be able to handle it 
and they can't necessarily. I'm not sure if that's strictly true. Um, But at the same time, it's a shame there's not a way for you as a user to kind of say, let this shoddily written application that pays no respect to these sorts of things take over for a bit, that kind of thing. I don't know. Um, it's, it's become kind of this sort of black box aspect to a lot of a lot of computers these days. And, and Apple Silicon, whilst it's quite powerful, is probably an exemplification of that. So, yeah. Anyway, if you're interested in digging in really deep and feel and have, have time to lose... <laughs> some hours getting deep then uh, take a look there's some fascinating stuff on there another slightly um, off the off the off the wall uh, random not quite connected to what i'd normally talk about article here um and then i'm going to get to the, the the big topic of the time don't worry i've got the uh, the, the bird is is coming up this is an article on axios by jennifer a kingston i don't really know why it caught my eye but how the pandemic is changing home design I don't know. I mean, there's been so many of these articles sort of almost, I hate to use the word, but capitalizing on um, changes from the pandemic and capitalizing on the pandemic, shall we say. And I think it really exemplified to me this tone deafness sometimes you get from article writers, especially in America. This sort of, this the picture already is outstanding, showing this large house and how now housing design, quote unquote, is being changed because more people work from home and need separate rooms and all this kind of stuff or home gym setups and all these sorts of things. And I just sat there thinking, who has houses like this? I mean, maybe even some people in America, but I would also imagine there's millions and millions of people who live in cities or live in poorer neighborhoods who don't have houses like this. People don't have houses like this in most of Europe. People live in tiny one-bedroom, if they're lucky, apartments where homeworking during the pandemic has meant juggling a laptop on your bed or your breakfast table. And it was frankly miserable. And people wonder why uh, so many home-based workers were keen to go back to the office. It's like because they never had a home office. You know, it was it was actually pretty unsavory for their life. And I don't know, the whole flavor of the article is just sort of so tone deaf it's like i don't know and it just it just amused me how you can have these kind of great big overarching statements about something and yet not really acknowledge that this is not the reality for a vast majority of people and then the 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 article ends with, what's next? Dedicated rooms are popping up for video games. Pfft, wow. Golf simulators, Zoom calls or relaxation, so-called Zen rooms. Metaverse rooms may be on the horizon. Oh, wow. I kind of thought the entire point of something like a virtual reality headset is where you were didn't really matter. But anyway, I don't necessarily recommend you read the article, but um, if you really want an exercise in futility, then uh, go for it. <laughs> Enjoy. One more slightly uh, random one here. Not re- This relates a little bit more to, to my day job, I suppose, but the the article really kind of took my interest as well as a, as a customer, not an affected customer, but also just as an exercise in how bad things can get sometimes. This is from Gurgly Oroz, I think, uh, from the Pragmatic Engineer. The scoop inside the longest Atlassian outage of all time, possibly one of the biggest outages of all time. But... Um, Back at the beginning of April, Atlassian, uh, who run Jira, Confluence, OpsGenie, Trello as well, which is probably what I use the most, but um, I don't think that was affected. And many other services um, were down for some time. 
Um, they, it's this is some of the gist of the article as well. They never really clearly communicated how many people for how long, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, with a company like this, with a company with this many customers, even a small percentage can be a lot of people. But the article goes relatively deep into what happened, as far as they know. Uh, and there's been a lot of um, connected content and announcements from Atlassian, not necessarily on what people would really like, which is more of an apology and transparency and things like that, but um, more on um, what they're going to do instead, which you can sort of read some between the lines to try and figure out what happened. Um, but, and I think... This has really hurt Atlassian's reputation. It has sent a lot of people to some of their competitors. You know, Jira especially is always the the butt of many jokes. So if people really need an excuse to move away, this something like this doesn't doesn't help. You know, um, you put up with something because it just works. Whatever, we don't like it. It just works, and if it doesn't work, well, there's very little reason to stick. So it doesn't really help. And the the author compares the way they handled things to the way a company like GitLab handles things. I mean, GitLab is a very extreme company on the other side. They do everything in the open, which has caused them issues in the past. But that's their modus operandus. And many other companies are not really like that and never have been. This sort of relates to a lot of what I do for my day job at the moment, which is working for an observability company. Uh, And I think a lot of people in that space were wondering, like, Atlassian even runs a service vaguely related to observability. So did they not have observability into their own system or did they just not, not know what to do about it? And this has been a growing discussion in the community of there is no much, not much, there is, sorry, there is no point in observing if you, if, it, if it's useless, if it's meaningless to you. Uh, maybe this is an example, but it's very hard to say. And anyway, the author goes through step by steps of what happened and the information that he got. He really badgers them quite a lot to get more and more information and it drips out. And there's even been an update since I last read this article uh, talking about how, well, what's happened since and how it still hasn't really uh, gone much further. So here, here it is. Update on May 1st. Latin publishes their post-mortem. I haven't actually read that, and I probably should. It's only just come out. But refused to share the number of impacted users. All they confirmed is how it was more than 50,000 users. As a lesson reached out to me ahead of time, offering a view of this postmortem, which they later walked back on, and I told them I expect this information to be published. I'm disappointed with the lack of transparency at Atlassian. Yeah. So I think this was a very good lesson on things not to do in a situation like this. Um, and this was a very fascinating post on why... That might be the case. So this goes deep into particular aspects of technology, but I, I recommend you take a read if that kind of thing interests you. And maybe you need a reason to move away from Jira. All right, I'm going to cover a bunch of content here related and then a couple more things to wrap up. So let's talk about Twitter. I don't really want to go too deep into what is going on with Twitter and a certain Mr. Musk, but I'm going to talk about some of the aspects around it, I think. Um, And one of these, like some of the stated aims of Elon Musk with Twitter is open sourcing the algorithm, which initially seems appealing and interesting to someone like me. 
But this is where I found some um, interesting discussions on why this may or may not be a good idea. So the first up is by Chris Stokel-Walker on MIT Technology Review, um, explaining why this might not be a good idea. Uh, Some saying that will it actually boost transparency at all? Will it introduce more security risks? I mean, this gets difficult because this is a conversation that goes backwards and forwards between open sourcing of things. Does it really uh, help transparency or not? Um, He claims it's to do with political censorship. And I don't know if Twitter's problems around that aspect would be solved by open sourcing it. Just because people can um, audit an algorithm doesn't mean the algorithm is any more or less effective, really, in its implementation, because there will still be people who, in fact, in some respects, there could be more people. I should I should prefix this by saying this: I'm a very much open source person, but I understand some of the, you know, some of the realities of that. Open source doesn't equal solving all your other problems. Far from it, and that's sort of. Um, I think that's sort of the, the, the thought behind this article. And the other interesting aspect is where his motivation is coming from. And it might not be one that aligns with open source ideals in that it gives governments an excuse to moderate what has become kind of a public service as well. Um, and is that necessarily the same motivations as someone who wants to just open source everything? Not necessarily. There's also, of course, the discussion around could people just copy or fork Twitter? Um, this has obviously happened in the open source world. This is kind of how the open source world works. I can't really think of many examples of something like that uh, with with a service that is run ostensibly 99% by one company, but potentially by others. I mean, there's obviously distributed networks, and we'll come to one of those in a minute. But it's not really how a company like this could operate. It becomes basically an open source server at that point. Um, and I guess one of the other aspects around this is this there's this open versus understandable, which has been coming up a lot, especially in regards to artificial intelligence. We've put the source code out there is a wonderful kind of blanket way of showing you've done something. But does it mean you've done something? Because it doesn't mean anyone can understand it. Um, You sort of see this obfuscation through apparent openness a lot in in recent years where someone announces something is open and kind of that's, that's what we need to do. But it doesn't mean the average person can come along and understand how it works. Um, And I see that kind of done a lot. And that actually bothers me quite a lot. This has been a discussion that's been going back and forth for a few years. Um, And then there's a lot of interchangeable, interconnecting parts to a service like Twitter. Do you open source all of them? Uh, Do you open source how to connect them, how to make them work? Do you open source all the people who make that work? You know, this this kind of thing as well. Uh, It seemed great in principle, but in reality, how would it work? I guess. Um, and then it seems that a lot of employers at Twitter are not even very keen on this. So here's an article from TechCrunch from um, Amanda Silberling. Twitter is protecting its source code from disgruntled employees. So this sort of connected, well, it is connected, but to the last topic, where 
a lot of people who work at Twitter are not particularly happy about the acquisition uh, announcement and for various reasons don't want people's hands on their code. Maybe it's because they don't want to open source. Maybe they just don't want the new owner. Um, and so Twitter has locked down its source code to prevent unauthorized changes. Uh, the reports say this change was made to prevent employees from going rogue and sabotaging the platform. Currently, a vice president must approve any changes, which is quite interesting. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting that you have this approach versus a potential approach that could be open sourcing everything. I mean, you can't have an open source. I have definitely seen open source projects where no one could really commit to anything, which is very much against the point, and that comes back to what I was talking about earlier. Um, but you know, if you're going to have a company that is is then going to open source its code, coming from this starting point, where because there's some disgruntled employees, a vice president has to approve everything, is. It's quite a jump, shall we say. So, so yeah, it's... I, you kind of get the impression, I wonder if anyone... Well, of course, no one ever asked the employees around, um, do you mind if this person overtake? You know, this person uh, buys us out. That's not really how companies do things. But it's like, do you buy a sinking ship? You know, do you announce buying of a company and half the staff leave and you, the company can't really run anymore because they don't like you the new buyer, is there much you could do with that company? It's it's this sort of interesting aspect around takeovers sometimes. I don't know. Anyway, and, and a lot of this is because he has, Elon Musk has his positives and his drive, but he's not been the, the best uh, leader of people, shall we say. Tesla's had lots of issues. Some of the other companies, not so much, but I guess they're probably smaller um, staff bases. And then leading to a kind of conclusion of all of this, Mastodon, we referred to this earlier, this um, decentralized alternative to Twitter. I have dabbled with it every now and then. I'm on there, but I just sort of keep forgetting to really go further with it. I think that's always the problem with alternative services is that you you need to have some reason to be there. Friends, networks, topics, etc., etc. But... Since the announcement um, of the acquisition of Twitter, 30,000 new users have signed up for Mastodon. And firstly, 30,000 doesn't seem very many, actually, to be honest with you, in my mind. This is specifically on uh, Motherboard from Joseph Cox, but that doesn't doesn't seem a great deal to me. That's the interesting thing here. 30,000 is is a drop in the ocean of of Twitter's users. Um, And it was actually just on the day of. Maybe there's been more since. And Mastodon servers even went down and this is actually an interesting aspect of it this is you know when you have a distributed service it's a lot easier to it's easier in some respects to keep it going but it's also harder in some respects because you don't have a centralized team keeping an eye on things i don't know this refers back to the atlassian uh, <laughs> uh incident as well where being centralized and and single sourced is is also in you know everything's a negative and everything's a positive depending how you look at it but anyway um i digress but um can these sorts of services cope at a scale of something like twitter is not is by far the most popular social network but 
could these distributed services like Mastodon cope with, even with that many users? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they know either. I guess they're probably going through a lot of thinking about this at the moment. And it is open source. And I think we we can see, unfortunately, unfortunately, that um, it's... It's not as popular. You know, this is always the, the downside with these open source communities. Often they're too hard to get started with. The The community is not as interesting to people when they get there. There's a lot of equal amount in different ways of um, poor community management, et cetera, et cetera, and abuse and things like that. And I think this comes back to the last article. Open sourcing is not always the answer to some of these problems it's the open it's sorry it's the answer to some problems but it's not the answer to all problems um yeah interesting story we will see obviously where this plays out but um i think there's going to be a little bit longer yet i actually get the impression to be honest with you my mind is that a lot of regulators in the european union the uk the us will potentially even uh, overrule this and it, it can't even happen at all so <laughs> Who knows? And just to round this all up, here is an article from Tech Beacon by John P. Mello Jr. Open source regulation, a good idea. <laughs> this has been coming up now again, especially with incidents like uh, Log4j, but others around. Do we need to regulate open source to make it work better for us? It's a reasonably short article. Take a look, but uh, I think the, the general summary and especially if we were to open to something like Twitter, is it's not a good idea because it kind of gets in the way. And it's self-regulated. I guess I would argue for the most part reasonably well. Obviously there's problems. But, you know, when you're considering how long it's been going and how much it powers things, it's done reasonably well. Yeah, we'll see. Have a read of that and uh, I'd love to hear your opinions on that. Uh, ChristianShiller.com to find more details as always. Incidentally, I'm about to do a bit of a site overhaul. I just need to find the time, but um, you'll be able to find some of those contact details a bit easier, I hope. Now, what have I been up to? There's a little bit more. There's more yet to come. This is going to be a long episode, an unusually long episode. Um, I went back to conferences, covering conferences. I need to actually write up my coverage of the, the event I went to. I need to get back into the, the habit of doing it. It's um, quite difficult and doing interviews there again and putting them back on the podcast. I used to do so many and then there's been this huge gap. I need to get back into the habit of doing it again. But I was in Riga for Tech Chill, um, a very nice event, very nicely run. I could only stay one day. But um, one of the things that actually jumped out at me, just uh, we went to, and I'll put these all into a write-up very soon, but we went to um, a bunch of startups on day zero, did a, a press tour, and one of them was developing a, um, a kind of professional use headset, uh, ostensibly for uh, medical devices, but also some military, and they let us, uh, let, we didn't really let leak to us because it's, it's public knowledge. I'm going to reference an article here. So, you know, this is an article I found on on Microsoft, on msf.com. 
about the HoloLens. The HoloLens was also kind of supposed to be one of these devices, and they had Microsoft signed this huge contract with the U.S. military, and the U.S. military keeps cancelling it and pushing it back because saying it's not good enough yet. Um, the company we saw is actually testing its device with some militaries, some much smaller militaries, but some militaries nonetheless, and also some uh, doctors. That's their prime use case, which is a much nicer use case to focus on, shall we say. Um, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to see that we have this never-ending promise of AR, especially for various use cases, and it just still seems so hard to the technology is there kind of, but making it actually usable in real life situations still seems to be quite difficult to to get going. And I mean I tried the one at the the, the office of this this company as well and I don't know, I was kinda of like, well it looks nice, but I still wasn't really clear how useful it was to me and it could be because I'm a glasses wearer, but it was still sort of hard to focus and things like that. And there's this image on this article of, I don't know if this is really an actual device, but uh, there's a soldier here with this giant camera array above his goggles. And I guess the military get used to these days carrying a lot of equipment, which is a whole other topic of conversation in itself. But it looks so unwieldy. <laughs> and, you know, if if... If they're injured or something like that, what happens to this equipment? This is like thousands of dollars of equipment on a person who is, to be blunt, fairly vulnerable. Um, and you know, what do you do with it if if they're shot or, you know, I hate to say it, but like how do you recover this equipment? Um, it has to be extremely durable. I guess this is some of the issues. So, yeah, um, more on that conference soon. But um, it was interesting to get back on the road. It was good to get back on the road. And, uh, yeah, I need to get back into the habit of covering events again. <laughs> so nice to be back in the Baltics as well. Always such a, an energetic space for startups and that kind of uh, world as well. And just seeing how enthusiastic uh, the, the communities there are in what they do. Okay, a couple of things from me. Firstly, I... I've been talking about it for a couple of episodes, but I finally got my hands on DuckDuckGo for macOS and took it for a spin in my latest video. You can find that on my YouTube channel, private browsing with DuckDuckGo for macOS. I also published an article on my attempted switch from Google Workspace. It was not as popular as my article on um, Evernote. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um, TLDR is I'm much like the Evernote one. I'm still not quite sure. I'm still flitting backwards and forwards on this decision, to be honest with you. But I would love to hear your thoughts potentially on um, on your ideas of what I could use instead of Google services for many of these things. Um, and I think that's about it for now. I've been away a bit, um, so I haven't been doing so much. I've been working very heavily on my novel, obviously traveling again, which is time consuming. Um, but actually uh, got some interesting things to come soon, I hope. As always, you can find more about me at chrischinchilla.com. I'll be getting my video schedule back up. I'm still going through a lot of backlog of editing and uh, got a lot of topics I want to cover on the hands-on stream, but just now getting back into the spirit of uh, of of doing them sometimes went away, I suppose. 
have a bit of an end finally piece for you. This is kind of more of a gaming content, but there was so much tech content there. I thought I would put at the end of the episode to uh, sort of nicely bookend the whole episode, as it were. This is an article from Dragon Magazine, the Wizards of the Coast official uh, Dungeons & Dragons magazine, issue 41. Actually, no, it's officially called Dragon Plus magazine. This is Comprehend Languages, a nice little reference there, D&D in translation by John Dodd. I liked this. This was an article about how... Dungeons and Dragons is translated into various languages. Um, I did actually once play Dungeons and Dragons with an Italian DM who was reading from an Italian uh, scenario booklet and live translating it into English as we played, which was quite impressive. Uh, and I think it made it even more random, which is quite wonderful. And yeah, uh, I have definitely seen it in German. There's also the sort of German equivalent games that were basically kind of clones of it, like... Uh, Die Schwarze Augen, The Dark Eye, which has been translating ironically back into English, but I don't think it was as popular because there was less need for it in English. Um, and I'm sure there's a huge indie scene of uh, roleplay games in various languages, but I found it really interesting. They talk about how the teams do it. I, I've tried to do translations of tech content and it's, it's difficult. It's very hard to do these sorts of things. And then the official links for the Dungeons and Dragons books in French, German, Italian and Spanish and also localized French and German Twitter accounts, but not Spanish, which is interesting. Um, and I, I sort of wonder, this is one of those wonderful examples of where you could open source things in some respects. Um, obviously, this is what the company kind of did in the past with the open gaming. No, the oh, I can't remember whose license is whose, but there was this concept of licensing content in the role playing world. And D&D did it with 3.5, which is how the game Pathfinder came about. Uh, I think it was a little bit of a, a flop in the end. Not Pathfinder, but the the kind of licensing switches. But if you could do that with um, officially with sort of community-contributed translations, obviously there'll be unofficial sources of this all over the place, but to do it officially would be kind of an interesting uh, contribution to your community where, especially if you're not going to do it to yourself anyway. All right, that's a nice place to end. Uh, thank you for joining me on this fairly long discussion episode. I'll be back next week, I think, with a few snippets from the aforementioned event in Riga and a few other things. So until then, thank you very much for joining me, everybody. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com, where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing, games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind-the-scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.